peace be to you. In the Cabo Let us begin with a question. Hello, and we are live. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to Curiously Catholic, an Evangelion production. This is the podcast where we get to pick the brains of Catholic enthusiasts to try and get to the bottom of how to live truly as a Catholic in contemporary times. My name is Dominic Melgeri, and on this episode today, we have Brendan Malone. How's it going, Brendan? Oh, Dom, good to be here. I was going to say, I love that hat. Yeah, it's got the <laughs> logo going on there. Can I, can I buy your merch? <laughs> Unfortunately, this is actually not something we designed. This was just uh, happen- a happy uh, coincidence. Oh, there you go. But yeah, we, we should definitely get some merch, eh? Uh, so, um, how's things, mate? Uh, good. Very busy. Uh, in fact, insanely busy. Um, partly because I've got a family of five and school holidays and also because of the ministry work that I do and it's just the times we're living in, unfortunately. So it's just yeah, all, it all, yeah. it all combines to make for one perfect storm. Yeah, I'm definitely feeling you. Uh, I mean, I don't have to contend with, uh, school holidays necessarily, but there's two girls at home that are running around <laughs> rampant. Um, yeah, I'm back to university after break, after a two week break on Monday. So just trying to get everything in check before that happens. But um, before we uh, just uh, spend too, too long talking about our children, um, might be a few people out there wondering who you are. Uh, so can you just quickly give us a bit of a glimpse, like who is Brenda Malone? Uh, well, I am someone who, well, where should I start? I'm a husband. I am a father of five children. Uh, I've got a teen, right from a teenage daughter, four girls, one boy, teenage daughter right down to a, a five-year-old daughter. Um, I run my own ministry called the Life Net Charitable Trust. I've been working full time in pro-life marriage and family ministry in New Zealand and Australia for it's almost 17 years now. It'll be 17 years, I think, in October this year. Uh, and I do a lot of traveling and speaking engagements and, and sort of training and formation and equipping work. Mm. Um, and I here in New Zealand, I was also involved in uh, for about 12, 13 years, 12 years, uh, I was the director of the Hearts of Flame Catholic Summer School. So uh, some listeners may be familiar with that. Um, and so, yeah, I, I've, I've guessed um, a bit of this and a bit of that. And I would say probably most ironically of all, I was at one point in my, particularly through my teen years, was a very ardent, evangelical, anti-Catholic uh, young chap. And, wow. um, and so here I am. It's kind of ironic, really, in many ways. God is good. Oh wow, that's a, that's a, quite a turnaround. Um, yeah, just a lot of information there. Yeah, because I, I first met you at uh, Heart to Flame, um, and that's you were right. giving a, a talk on like manhood and uh, you know uh, the co- the call that goes with that. And because uh, at the time I was engaged to my now wife, um, yeah. and so yeah, that was my first year in the country actually. Um, I remember that. Yeah, it was, it was well. It I think you were beardless too, weren't you? You were you were clean. Uh, just 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 a chin strap, just a chin strap. Oh um, yeah, yeah. Just, just keep the hair on. Um. So yeah, man, you've 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 done so much. Uh. So I'll, we'll start off with the faith element as we start every episode. Um. We go into like, what was your faith journey? Were you a cradle or were you a convert? It sounds like you were a convert to uh, Catholicism. 
Uh, no, I was Cradle who left, and then as a, I'm a reconvert, basically. Uh, uh, here's, I, I would describe it like this. I grew up in um, a, a very uh, Christian household. My parents were Catholic and very charismatic, and they, they really loved Jesus. They loved God. They were beautiful people. Uh, my father passed on a few years ago. My mother's still alive. Um, and I think what they assumed was that as young lads, we were going along to First Holy Communion and training and, and CCD and confirmation classes that we were going to learn the Catholic faith that way. So the sort of the meat and potatoes, if you like, of Catholicism was actually missing in our family home. And I think our parents uh, sort of assumed, probably like a lot of parents, that our, their kids were going to learn it by osmosis and through parish classes and stuff, but we didn't. And I got to about the age of, I was like 12 or 13, and I tried my hand at shoplifting. I got caught. My parents were really worried. The local Catholic church did not have a youth group, functioning youth group. Uh, and so two doors down was an evangelical church with a really good youth ministry that was happening, and, and they were gathering together every weekend. So they went and talked to them, and I became part of that. And I ended up in this place of ignorance I started reading Jack T. Chick tracks about Catholicism. I thought the church was um, horrifically bad and evil. I told my parents they were going to hell at one stage. We were in danger of going to hell. Uh, yeah, it, it was pretty I, – I went wild, and uh, and I left. And then uh, really it was in my early 20s when I came back. I had a, a really strong intellectual conversion that was missing when I was younger, and I realized straight away, well, this was the church that Christ founded. It seemed pretty clear on the balance of probabilities and all of the evidence and the reading of key scriptures and history that this was what God had intended. And uh, and so I realized, uh, you know, I heard that call very strongly. I still wasn't quite back 100% yet, if you like. Um, that happened really for me. I remember it was, I think it was Eucharistic adoration. I just had a profound encounter with the Holy Spirit, more powerful than anything I'd experienced as an evangelical. I'd been a worship leader. I'd done the whole shebang. I was in the evangelical church through the time of what was called the Toronto Blessing, the Pensacola Revival, which is like this big charismatic thing that went around the world. And uh, and so all these people desperately looking for the most powerful experience of the Holy Spirit they could have had, none of that, all of that paled in comparison to the encounter I had uh, in Eucharistic Adoration. And that was really sort of, mm. I think that really sealed the deal for me. Uh, that's really beautiful. Like, is I think... Yeah, I've, I've had that similar experience, uh, especially with the adoration. Um, it really it really brought my faith to life. Um, you know, even after I converted, I, I converted through a charismatic route as well. And um, yeah, yeah, it's, it's, it is amazing. It just colorizes everything. Everything becomes so vivid just through the Eucharist. Um, but yeah, so like your uh, upbringing, um, I imagine, you know, that's, you know, has influenced you a lot in like the way that you interact with people now. Um, Cause a part of what you do, would you do, would you say you do a little bit of apologetics as well? Yeah, I do. And I do, this is the, the beauty of it. I think there's a, I've been on a very graced journey, I would say, because I do uh, a lot of work now in the back in the evangelical church. And um, it's quite a beautiful thing. There's, there's this sort of, I, I look at my time in the evangelical church and I got I received uh, formation and and sort of practical formation and and uh, really honing of certain skills, particularly around evangelization that I never would have got if I'd stayed in the mm. Catholic Church, I don't believe. And then when I came back to my faith, Catholic faith, I got the deepening and the fullness of that truth. 
And now I, 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 there's a real beautiful, and I, I, a lot of my friends I'm regularly working with, speaking at evangelical events. Um, I think I, I'm a big fan of C.S. Lewis's Mere Christianity and the idea that those of us from different Christian denominations who could all sit down and, and say the Apostles' Creed from start to finish and agree 100% with every single clause, we have more in common with each other as brothers and sisters of different denominations than I would with a liberal Catholic who rejects tenets of the creed or they would with a liberal Protestant Protestant who rejects tenets of the creed. Yeah, yeah, because obviously uh, as Evangelion's mission is uh, to evangelize and bring the gospel to those in New Zealand so like that's a, a big part of what we what we want to do. Um you said that like a uh, youth group was a big part of your um stabilization coming back like nourishment in the faith is starting off so would you say like you know there is a, a right way of doing youth ministry and like obviously we don't do we see that in the catholic church nowadays or was is that not really there um i i have to say because i worked in full-time youth and young well really i've worked in youth ministry across both denominations and full-time young adult ministry um i i think i'm thinking back i think our the Diocese of Christchurch, who I was working for, was one of the first in the country to have specialised young adult ministry. That's 18 to 35-year-olds. I think we were actually a New Zealand leader in that, and I was the first person to ever inhabit that role uh, that I'm aware of. And so that was just focused on that. And so there's things I think we've done well, but I think I, I think things there's things that concern me. Um, I'll tell you what my, my concerns are. Number one is I think that there's a real danger of that things have become a bit over-bureaucratized. There's a lot of bureaucracy around ministry now. And some, uh, you you can't just have ad hoc, no administrative sort of oversight, but you've got to have a proper oversight and everything else and team leadership and all that kind of stuff. But I think often the layers of bureaucracy, um, and it's not just a Catholic youth ministry problem, it's everywhere, but I think there's a bit of that at times. You, you know, we've got to fight hard against that in order to allow the Holy Spirit to really, I think, lead us because often the Holy Spirit wants to just turn on a dime. He, he doesn't want to work to our plans. He's got a plan, and our job is to figure out how can we stick to that as closely as we can, and that's hard. But, but if you get into sort of bureaucratized mode, it's like, no, no, Wednesday, 9 a.m., this is what we do, you know, and I finish at 5, and if you've got a problem, young person, come and see me tomorrow morning. So, you know, it's it's it's, it's ministry, youth ministry is very different like that. So that's one thing. Secondly, I think um, uh, that I, I think that, really in, in youthmen, one of the things that's, I think, essential is actually looking for ways to try and not segregate young people away from local parish community and local family and, and, and their family. I, I'm, I'm, I'm more and more I'm starting to see that what we really need, I think, is a model of sort of community-based ministry where youth ministry is part of a bigger whole. At the moment, I think often it exists as its own separate entity and and I say that as someone who worked in that space as an overseer of it as an, its own separate entity. But I think really, if you don't win families over as well, and you're not ministering to families to minister to the young people, you you will keep some young people, but a lot of them they fall through the cracks. Uh, mm. I think that that's the, that's a, a huge factor. So I think that there's and and also the local parish is really key. If if you if your local parish is not actually an evangelistic community. Um, of with holiness and vibrancy in the faith and people being formed, then and you're trying to do all of your youth ministry formation at a uh, like a diocesan level, it's mm. it's you're you're pushing against the wind, I think, in a really big way. Mm. Yeah, I, that's something like that. As I've gone through, you know, I did seven years in a chaplaincy and I did a, 
a year over a couple of years overseas in, in the UK as well. And I think something that I've come to realize at the end of that is like, um, yeah, you know, youth ministry is. I feel like calling it youth ministry almost uh, does it a disservice because it, it, it specifies it too much. And then it's like, okay, youth ministry is done by youth ministers. I'm not a youth minister. I'll just turn up to mass. And uh, I feel like it, it works with uh, social social justice as well. Like, okay, I'll go and work yeah. with the Vinnies or I'll go and work with Caritas or I'll go and work in a soup yeah. kitchen. It's like, actually, why don't you just look at the guy next to you on the train kind of thing? Um, or yeah. even even just your brother or sister in your house, you know? What what yeah. what can you do to uh, as Jordan Peterson says, make sure your beds uh, your bedroom's entirely well, before you go out. That's the key, I think. And I th I think this is one of the things with the professionalization of any ministry is there's a real danger that what happens is the rest of us go, oh, just leave it to the professionals. They're doing the evangelism now. They're doing the formation now. Mm -hmm. When in actual fact, it's a calling for all of us. And 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 uh, and uh, and really, it has to be a communal. And I think more so now because the breakdown of community in the West is so great that people need to encounter authentic community, not just an individual who's trying to tell them about this guy called Jesus and who he is and what it means mm. to be in relationship with them. Yeah, I think nowadays, especially, we do have a tendency also to um, put people on a pedestal. It's like, oh, mm -hmm. I've, I've been to see Chris West. I'll be fine, yeah. you know, or, yeah. I'll, you know, whatever, Jason Everett, whoever, Brendan Malone. And so we've, uh, <laughs> it's yeah. like, I'll, I'll go to You're him. You're in trouble if I'm on the pedestal. <laughs> <laughs> There's different levels. Anyway, um, <laughs> but, uh, yeah, I think... Yeah, youth ministry is a real, um, well, I think ministry as well is like, what would you say that ministry is? Because we think of like, um, you know, I run a prayer, like a prayer night, which is kind of a ministry called Encounter, and there's a postal at work, and this uh, podcast is a kind of a ministry, but what actually would you say ministry is in a church context? Text? Well, it's a good question. I think... Like some of these words, they're almost Christianese buzzwords and mm. they mean they can mean different things. I think really probably apostolate and ministry I would use as two interchangeables. I really do believe that. And then I think there are I, I think minister when I think of ministry, I think of a specific way of evangelizing, forming, taking Christ to the people around you that is I think very specified, if you like. It's um evangelization for example is something you might do on a bus you have a conversation with someone next to you i think if evangelization was your ministry you would have a special ministry which was you know you committed a certain number of hours each week or month to that that it might have a particular program it runs or a way of doing things do you know what i mean it's a bit more it's almost like there's a little bit more of a formalized commitment around um than uh, around what you're doing so when i think of ministry it's ministering to people but i think in a more committed way if you like mm. um whereas the reality is if you think about that word anytime you take christ to someone you are ministering to them you know it's mm. anytime you reflect the face of christ even if you don't realize it you're still ministering to them but when i say when i think of ministry i think of it as a very specific sort of thing mm, no yeah yeah me too um i suppose it is what you're saying like you know um, there is that broader ministry, which is just that just that will just happen as, as long as you're a person of prayer and you're going about your life. But then there is that more specified way of saying, OK, I'm going to minister in a specific capacity, like as a Catholic chaplain or as a podcaster yes. or whatever, um, which kind of like uh, brings me on to your kind of work, because I feel that you have 
many ministries, and that's just looking at you from the outside. My, my first interaction with you, my first few interactions with you was as a Catholic speaker. Uh, Hearts of Flame, I believe the Hearts of Flame I saw you at was the last Hearts of Flame you were at. And then yeah, from there, I saw you a few talks after that. And then I saw you, you had Left Foot Media. Um, mm. We had you on my old podcast, Gregorian Chat. We had, right. and then there's uh, Life Site, uh, Life Net, sorry. And then now you've got the Monday Night Live as well, and so like you, you, you know, your ministry is is, is big. <laughs> well, like you've got lots of different avenues, and so it's like different ministries in that in that specified sense. Um, but I was going to talk to you about Activate because this is the one that um, I think it's really it sounds really interesting to me. So could you give us a, a brief overview of what Activate is? Okay, so Activate is a a one week pro life training. Uh, formation event where you it started originally in New Zealand uh, where participants gather together they they live in it's a live-in experience so you, there's like a little community that forms for a week and and it's a week of intensive formation in like pro-life ethics pro-life apologetics um, uh, we have now we have a doctor who comes in and does some classes on embryology uh, we talk about abortion euthanasia we also talk about things like crisis pregnancy care post-abortion counseling people who are specialists in those fields come in and talk about that uh, we also talk about the bigger cultural context what it is to be in a culture of life versus a culture of death how we might better and more effectively engage with and evangelize culture we talk about media training and effective use of social media uh, how to do all that kind of stuff well, leadership skills, practical leadership skills. And then we do things in the evenings like we would uh, we sit down and we would watch a, a film together or a doco and then we take notes and we discuss it, we unpack the themes and what, what how it might be speaking to, you know, our culture and, and particularly in these areas. Uh, it started uh, about 11 years ago in New Zealand, myself and a couple of guys in the Kapiti Coast who are part of Voice for Life began this venture uh, originally i ran a version of it that was six weeks long and we had two young people amazing young people they came and lived they moved from auckland to christchurch for six weeks and they lived in actually at the university chaplaincy in christchurch and and then um they would come in and they would spend like a day working in a crisis pregnancy center they would spend you know formation days they'd have assignments each week they had to do and uh these two guys um Dave and Brian from from Capity said to me, "Look, this is great, but can we do a one week? Do you think you could create a one week program that we could do so that it's more accessible to more people?" And I said, "Funny, you should say that. I had been thinking about that, and so that was where it began. And so uh, the next year, very next year, we did. It was uh, in, in July in New Zealand, and it just took off from there. Now, the first year that we ran it, one of the participants then proceeded to go over to Australia to finish his university degree." And while he was there, he started up a pro-life movement on Australian campuses, Australian universities. And then he said, well, I'd like to send some of my leaders back over. And so he sent over the next year. There was another, there's a couple of senior leaders came over. And then he said, well, hold on a minute. Why don't you come to Australia in February, every February or end of January, and you can run the program there. And so that started that, and it's been running in in Australia every year. In fact, sometimes two or three times a year in Australia, in different parts of Australia. That campus ministry, he's he's moved on well and truly now. 
Uh, he's a professional academic himself back here in New Zealand. But that ministry he started is now thriving. I think they're on they're on all five university campuses in Sydney. They're in uh, Sunshine Coast. They're in Perth. They're in Melbourne. Uh, th- th- yeah, it's 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 amazing. And as I said I go back every year. And 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 that first year that we did it, that we ran it here in New Zealand, there were several uh, people who went through the program who have now gone on to. So someone um, is 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 now in. Uh, our New Zealand Parliament as an MP who did it the first year. Uh, we have someone else who's running a big think tank overseas, someone else who's in the UK running a major organisation over there. So a lot of really good fruit has come from it. And um, in the last couple of years, it's now moved into a ministry that I run in conjunction with Focus on the Family. It just it's sort of, it's, as it grew and and there was sort of a natural movement in that direction, it, it, it um it's something now that uh, I run in conjunction with Focus on the Family, and it's uh, it's still happening every July. Last year, COVID really knocked our knees out, mm. but we're, we're back this July again. So yeah, yeah, man, it sounds like a phenomenal course, and just like the history of it and the, the way it's grown, mm. it sounds um, well very of God. Everything that God in, ordains kind of grows and becomes good, mm. eh? Yeah. Um, I mean, it, ha- it has to be because I tell you, like. There's plenty of mistakes to be made along the way. I'm a I'm a humble little fisherman, if you like, just doing his best to try and pull a few fish into the boat. The net's often full of holes, um, but there's been some amazing fruit, and and all of that glory for that it has to go to God because it's you know, um, yeah, it's just amazing what's happened out of it. Yeah, I think pro life. I feel like it's it's definitely like the 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 front line of uh, Catholicism like that's the like those who do like um, pro life work and those who attend all the you know forty days for life praying outside abortion clinics that's like kind of living the Catholic faith in a really practical way um, mm-hmm. but something else I also feel is that it's absolutely terrifying um, yeah. how how can people um, get over that fear would you say I think this is the thing. There's often a, um, I think, first of all, I think you're right. I think that uh, for too many of us, we have failed to perhaps recognize for too long that some of the most important principles of Catholic social teaching are that social justice begins in the womb. The right to life is the first and most fundamental of all human rights, and it is the first and most important principle of Catholic social teaching. Um, In fact, Pope John Paul II said it very clearly when he said, uh, you know, people talk about the gospel of life, as in pro-life issues. They, you might talk about, say, the gospel of social, the social gospel. And then you might, some others might talk about the salvific gospel, the gospel of salvation. He said they're not three separate things. They're all one and the same. Mm. And he uh, he saw that very clearly. And he was a man who lived through Nazism and then communism. He understood what lay at the heart of a culture of death and what abortion was actually a manifestation of and euthanasia now. And so it is, it's a huge frontline issue. And so much of of I, look, I just can't understate how important it is. Actually, um, it's, we're talking about human lives. It is, is a we have a we live in a society in a country where the deliberate killing of innocent human life is not just tolerated but celebrated, and that that's mm. that's shocking. Now, people might be tempted to say, "Oh, isn't that a bit extreme, Brendan?" Or you know, it's complicated. Those same sorts of reasonings were used in the past for other challenging social issues. When slavery is the big issue of the day, people had the same fear you're talking about. When civil rights was the issue of the day in, in America, people had the same fears. Uh, we, we all like to think, well, if Hitler arrived in my country, I'd stand up against him. The sad reality is that the majority didn't. They sat back in quiet and, and didn't mm. speak up. 
And it was actually that that allowed a very committed minority of people with bad intent to do what they did. And that's how that's the story of history. So I think, how do you get over that fear? Well, there's a couple of things I'd say. Number one is um, that courage is not the absence of fear. And I think we often think it is. And I think also um, that we have to get over this idea that if I feel comfortable doing something, that's what God's will is. No, the cross is not comfortable at all. There's no such thing as a posturepedic cross, and we are called to take up a cross. It's that simple. And so there's going to be times, plenty of times, when to do the Lord's work, it's uncomfortable. Uh, I should just say, say a little segue here. There's a difference between, um, by the way, legitimate persecution and, I guess, just making people feel uncomfortable for the sake of it. So, you know, there's two types of persecution. That persecution that you have when you stand up for the truth because it is the right thing to do and you do that courageous thing, even though you're petrified and and people ridicule you and, uh, you know, curse your good name or whatever it might be for doing that. You might even lose your job in some instances. The other type of persecution is where you just do dumb things and people get angry at you, you know. Oh, I'm such a martyr, you know. I walked into a party, had <laughs> a room full of strangers, first thing out of my mouth, hey, let's talk about the evil of abortion. You know, like that is, that is, I would argue, not a proactive way or a productive way to go about things. Mm. Um so that's that's first thing. So we got we got to have the courage. Don't be afraid of uncomfortability. And second thing I'd say is to recognize and this. Is one of the things we talk about on our pro life training week actually is that we've often mistaken the word unity for the word uniformity, and we think that every person who is pro life has to do the exact same thing. That's not true. Some people are called to be pro-life in a hospital and through a medical degree that they've got in their medical practice. Other people are called to be on the front lines outside abortion clinics. Other people like me are called into that pro-life formation and motivation and equipping mm -hmm. space. There's lots of different ways. Other people who are artists, who just like there was with the civil rights, like people like Nina Simone and Sam Cooke were like these artistic, beautiful artistic voices of the civil rights movement. And so everyone has a different part to play in this. And, and so um, I, I think to pe I'd say to people, courage is important, but also don't make the mistake of assuming that to be pro-life is just a one-dimensional thing. It's, mm. There's actually quite a lot that's involved and quite a lot of avenues that need mm. people's attention. Well, it's, yeah, it's, it's like the faith. It's a life lived. And I'm glad you brought up that difference between, um, you know, the different types of persecution because, like, I feel like um, you often – meet people that are so passionate about pro-life they would sooner hit you over the head with a, a pro-life pamphlet than actually have a conversation with you and i was wondering if you could maybe give because like give a, people listening a few tips about um like you said pro-life starts in the womb the womb start is is based mainly in the home so where mm -hmm. where how can we start what's like a, the the basis of of a pro-life is it's you know because sometimes I feel like, oh man, I've got to, I've got to read a whole lot of books, and then I've got to work out on how I, I engage people randomly in the streets. <laughs> you know, it's like, okay, maybe let's let's take a few steps back. What's the first step of being a pro-life person? Well, I, I think the first thing is you've got to humility is the essential. Two, well, two virtues really: humility and courage. We talked about courage already, because in a culture of death, and we are living in a culture of death, it's not sugarcoated. Uh, that there is, in many ways, I would call it a new paganism we find ourselves living in now, the way things are shaping up because of the way the West has abandoned Christ. And it's a very serious crisis we find ourselves in. So it takes courage to speak in opposition or live in opposition to that, to say no to certain things uh, that have become so popular and ingrained. The second virtue I think is important is humility. You need to have the humility, I think, to recognize that, um, that there is 
th- th- there are some really important moral truths here that God gives to us about the human person and the dignity and the sanctity of human life, and they can never be compromised. And and it takes humility to sort of say, well, okay, maybe I've been wrong about that in the past, and now I need to get right about that. And that's that's a challenge. It takes humility to say, I'm, I'm going to embrace that even when that's hard to do in a culture that doesn't want to hear that message. Se- second thing I'd say is I think you've got to live it. You've, it's actually got to be lived. It's It can't just be talked about. As the old saying goes, you know, if if you want to really have effective witness, you can't just talk the walk. You've got to walk the talk. And so that means you have to be open to the gift of new human life. You have to be a person who is truly welcoming to those who might find themselves in positions of vulnerability and need. Uh, when those people around you might open up one day and say, I had an abortion, you know, you're, you're what you are willing to do for that person in that moment, are you going to love them or just sort of hope it quietly goes away? That That's that's really where all of the culture of life begins. I think that's the first thing. And and I think, uh, and, and you know, for married couples, is there an openness to life in our, in our relationships? That's It's absolutely essential. The culture of life begins with a, a respect for the gift of life and a love for that. And, and that love is often, you know, I often describe um, parenting as like the most beautiful cross you'll ever carry. But it is still a cross at times and the splinters really mm. dig in. And it's, you know, and it's not, it's not glamorous and no one, no one uh, is there to to see you at 2 a.m. when you have to get up to your kids crying and and no one's gonna write a movie or a book about that and glamorize your life. You know, it's just it's not gonna happen. And you've got to keep doing it day in and day out until they get old and leave and then come back every weekend with their washing for you to take, you know, stuff like that. It's it's yeah. not it's but it's a beautiful cross because there's lots of beauty in that and the way that it I've been reading a lot of uh, secular authors now and a lot of secular commentators are talking about now the crisis within the West of people who were sold the lie that self-gratification was the path to fulfillment. It's not. It is self-giving. And so you've got a lot of people now who really probably the um, the millennials who are now starting to hit, come into that sort of period of their life where like their, their fertility clock is just winding down. And they're now like, oh, my gosh, where's the stuff? Where's the meaning I was actually looking for? You know, I went and did all these other things, but I didn't find meaning because I never gave myself to a husband or a wife or a community mm-hmm. or, or raising a child. And, and I just assumed that someday if I wanted to do that, it would just be there. And, and it's, it's, I mean, it's, it's such a beautiful cross, but it, it's the greatest school of love, I would argue, really, in many mm-hmm. ways. And, and so I think that's where it all has to begin. And, and then I think, too, there has to be, a willingness to actually, um, Alexander Solzhenitsyn gave a famous speech about communism, and he said, you might not be able to stand up publicly and resist communism. You might not be in a position to do that, but you can always refuse to live that lie. And I think that's what we've got to be willing to do at the very least, to say, well, I'm not going to live the lie of the culture of death. I don't care if it's easier. I don't care if it takes more effort for me to do X, Y, and Z, to be faithful to that culture of life and that respect for the sacredness of every human life. That's what I must do. And I think, and then what I think happens is everything else starts to flow out of that. When you talk about like the idea of getting practical formation, which is very important, I think, and intellectual formation and how to talk about these issues and understand them. Um, but everything I think first has to begin with that, that, that place of openness and, and embracing the culture of life ourselves. Mm, yeah. You know, yeah, charity starts at home, love starts at home. And I love that, you know, courage and humility. That humility is a big one because I think, like, you know, for that avid pro-lifer, you know, they might see someone come up to them and say, I've had an abortion, and they just hear abortion, that's awful. And they're like, oh, no, no, 
rein it in. I don't, you know, it's like get rid of that pride of like I know the answer to this question. It's like it wasn't a question; it was a statement. Um, and being able to love in that moment, it's a uh, look. Look, our, our, the, the culture of life is a culture of love, authentic, self-giving love. As I often mm. say to high school students, you know, when talking about love and sexuality issues, and and you'll say, well, what is what is love? And and you get all sorts of varied answers that are completely wrong, but they are products of a culture that doesn't understand authentic, self-giving love. And mm. and as I often like to say, you know, uh, someone says, oh, it's butterflies in my tummy. Well, that could be, or it could be a bad sandwich that you had for lunch. So it's important to know the difference, right? And, and authentic self-giving love is actually an action. It's the action of willing the good, seeking the good, working for the good of another person, even if that costs you something. It, it's, it's an action. You can see it. It's tangible. And the culture of life is a culture of self-giving love. That should be our instinct. Uh, we've got to be like a boxer. A boxer doesn't get into a ring, and as the opponent is swinging their fist at them, go, oh, what do I do now? <laughs> <laughs> they train in outside of the ring in lots of small ways so that in that moment, it's all muscle memory. It's just instinct. They duck, yeah. they weave, they punch back. Our instinct has to be, our defining instinct, I would argue, for the culture of life has to be self-giving love. And a, a big part of that is you've mentioned the situation of someone who brings up the story of, well, I've had an abortion. Or they get, initially get angry. I, 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 I say a lot to pro-lifers in my training, don't be afraid of first reactions. We've got to be willing to get past them. And I think too often in the church, and it's not just in the pro-life area, it's in lots of areas, we've been so afraid of the first reaction or the initial reaction, which is where someone gets angry. How dare you say that? Oh, that's rubbish. You know, that we say, okay, let's stop talking about the hard issues because mm. we're afraid of the first reactions. No, don't be afraid of them. What you've got to do is just keep loving people through them. And I, here's what I guarantee you. You will very quickly discover that if you keep loving people and persevering through the initial reaction, it won't take long before you actually get to a deeper, more meaningful level in that conversation, and you'll see some beautiful, profound stuff. Like I could tell you story after story about people who were just totally ill-equipped to, to, to be in these situations where someone said to them, I've had an abortion, or I'm angry, or I hate that you're standing out here on the street corner, and they've just loved them. And then a few minutes later, that person is saying uh, things like, I, you know, I wish you were here when I had my abortion. Or um, I know of one woman who was very angry to a group of people who are quietly maintaining a peaceful vigil outside an abortion clinic. 20 minutes later, when she left, she said, thank you for being here. Please keep coming each week. So <laughs> that I think that only happens though, if you're willing to persist through those initial mm. reactions and not run away from them. And I think too often we, we, we try and tailor the message to the first reaction when we shouldn't. Mm, yeah. So like a line that came to me is like from C.S. Lewis is as, um, you don't need to defend the truth. The truth is like a lion. Just set it free. It'll defend itself. And like just holding that truth of the truth of pro-life and that, that um, self-giving love, even while someone's screaming at you, it, you know, eventually they'll calm down because what you've got is unchanging. It's truth. Mm. And like event eventually they've got no argument against it. And I suppose there is that peace in that. It's like there's nothing else for me to say except this. So I'll just wait until you're ready to hear it. Um but uh, yeah, that's beautiful. I, I, I think I think that's to what what happens as well as people begin to recognise that this person really believes this because they charitably hold their line. They they really do believe this is a truth that is so important that it is worth sacrificing even your own reputation for. It, it's mm. it's and that's a powerful witness to people. It really is. 
Um, and it's getting harder and harder to hold that line. But I think it, it it's it's really important that we re and it's not just by the way in pro life areas. I think in all areas, um, I think far too often we are far too quick to mistake the word pastoral for the word popular. And we think if we do the thing that's popular in the church, that's being pastoral. No, no, it's not. It, it may not. They may not actually be the same thing at all. And often they can be not the same thing at all. And being pastoral actually sometimes requires, just like parenting does, some tough love, a genuine love, but a love that's not willing to compromise the truth because you can have definitely have truth without compassion. You mentioned that earlier, but you can never have authentic compassion without the truth. You just can't. I see. So that's like kind of talking about how we can uh, be pro-life in the home, just on our everyday life. It's being consistent. It's being humble. It's being courageous and staying in that truth. Things get a bit more difficult when we step outside the home. Um, I myself am going into the healthcare field. I'm becoming a nurse. There's many of my friends that are doctors or pharmacists, and we find ourselves in a particularly um, struggling situation of like, how do we maintain our pro-life and continue to work in a field that may, you know, there are, you know, I've never heard, I haven't heard anything official, but like, you know, there's always rumors of like, oh, you, you might have to just do abortions one day, you know. Look, look, I, I, you, you guys are in an unenviable position because what's happening now is with you've got there's a combined pincer movement going on right now with the the new euthanasia legislation and the extreme abortion legislation act, which has liberalised abortion in New Zealand right up to and according to the legal experts I've spoken to, who are not people given to flights of fancy, it is legalised it right up to and even during birth if an abortion wa abortionist wanted to do that, it was willing to do it. So it's very serious. Now what's happened though is it's brought, um, uh, sorry there's a moth flying around me, it's brought uh, get behind me Satan, um, it's brought uh, um, it's brought both of those acts have brought nurses and nurse practitioners into the fray into those arenas now in a big way. And they have also both targeted conscientious, you know, freedom of conscience rights for health practitioners. So there's a real, there's a real challenge for people in that sector that probably hasn't existed, certainly in our country, not in this way previously, that 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 um it is making it harder. And and the 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 persecution is real. I I have a very good friend of mine who is a Christian doctor in Australia and he he will tell you, he said he was effectively, he was, he was pro-choice until he was during his training. He found himself in this, you know, gynecological surgery, which he hadn't been fully told what it was. And he goes in there and discovers it's an abortion and he sees the remains of a dead child. And that completely transforms his whole ethos. And it, it, it shakes him to his core and it brings about this beginnings of a massive conversion. He, and he actually came along to the, pro-life training that I ran in Australia and and then he it was after that that really like he, he now comes to New Zealand to to provide a couple of sessions to our people over here now on embryology and stuff like that but he'll tell you that after that change happened for him and he and he embraced what it was he, he wasn't running down hospital corridors, scre corridors screaming abortion is murder abortion is murder and anything nothing crazy he just quietly announced to his peers that he was studying with that he realized that abortion was not right. It was not morally good. He had shifted his position just quietly and in a conversation. It's how it happened. And then all of a sudden the persecution started and it was just insidious. He said he would, he, he had 
supervisors who'd heard about it who wouldn't sign off on things that he needed to get signed off on. He said, have to go above them. And the superior was saying, why are you coming to me? That person should be doing it. He's, he's like, well, they won't do it for me. And, and it was it was this, he said it was a very difficult and lonely period in his life and his training where he's, he's medical training is hard enough. Then you're sort of, you're ostracized simply mm. for shifting your view. Nothing radical, nothing radical at mm. all. So it, it is, I think there's a great courage required by medical professionals. And interestingly enough, uh, for whatever reason, the caring professions uh, attract a disproportionate number of people of faith, particularly Christians. Mm. I think it's because Christianity calls us to that genuine self-giving love for for the vulnerable. Um, but uh, th that's it's a challenge that more and more medical professionals are going to have to grapple with. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Yeah, it's, it's, it's a terrifying time when we start thinking about the, uh, you know, all these people that have gone into the healthcare profession to help, but also because of the interest of the science and like actually wants to be, have that effect in people's lives. And, you know, it's kind of been taken away from them because of their understanding of what, you know, what is essentially, what is the truth? Well, it, it's and, also that there's also that sense of um, the, the, the state now becoming more like the conscience for a medical practitioner, which is extremely dangerous. We've seen yeah. other moments in recent decades where the state does become the conscience and says, no, you must not operate according to conscience. We will tell you what your conscience is allowed to think and act upon. And that's really, very dangerous, particularly for a practitioner, because I would argue that medical practitioners need individual freedom of conscience to actually practice medicine properly mm, yeah yeah it's yeah it's there's, there's some and i think we could spend all night on this one but i want to go into a bit more on like um on sharing the pro-life message um because i feel like there's there's like maybe a couple of different groups of people there's people like completely anti pro-life and uh Within that group, there's uh, maybe people that are just, you know, um, indoctrinated by the pro-choice movement, and there's maybe people that are hurt from past wounds. Maybe they've had an abortion, therefore, and they see you and they attack. But then there's also this, I'd say the, the majority maybe, uh, you correct me if I'm wrong, that are just kind of like apathetic, and they're like, oh, I just want to be able to have the option. I mean, mm. I wouldn't personally, but, uh, you know, I think everyone should be able to. And Like, how do we... Well, for example, like for that argument specifically, how do we, how do we talk into someone's life in that moment? Like when they say, "I just want someone to have the option to do so." Well, I think uh, the question is, and this is the this is the evil of the the phrase pro-choice. It's it, 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 what it did was it distracted attention from what the actual choice was that was on the table, and so all of a sudden we were talking about choosing rather than what was being chosen. Mm. And if you shift that into other arenas, you realize the problem straight away. If we start talking about the idea of, well, why can't we have people who are pro-choice on slavery? Why can't we? Why can't we have people who say, well, yeah, that's your moral prescription against slavery. But I am I think people, I'm pro-choice on it. I think of some, I would never personally own slaves, but if other people want to do that, then who am I to, to judge or to stop them? And you realize pretty quickly, oh, hold on, that's not really a very good moral philosophy at all. It's not a good way to govern our lives. So I think what we've got to do is try and encourage people with charity, with gentle firmness, uh, to consider what is actually, what is abortion? What is it? What is it doing? Who does it do it to? And, and a lot of people have never considered those things. They have never properly considered it. And I think also there is a lot of people out there who just, uh, you're right, they're in sort of a bland, mushy middle group who who have no idea how strong, robust, and I would argue actually foolproof, the pro-life ethic really is. 
I often tell people this, and I really mean this. If the pro-choice ethic was more logical than the pro-life one, I would not be pro-life. I am pro-life because the pro-life ethic, it just, it like it's like a bright torch burning against nothing on the other side. And every argument that's put forward, which often are very emotive, but once you start to break down the layers of what is being proposed, you realize, no, that's not good at all. Very quickly, a lot of people have never had that sort of examination or scrutiny. Even things like, the, it's very popular now, the bodily rights argument is probably the strongest and most popular argument used by the pro-choice movement. But just think about that for a second. What that argument is saying is that your bodily autonomy is so important, it is sacred, and it is so sacred and important that you should never be able to force someone to do something with their body that they don't consent to. To which pro-lifers go, you're right, which is why you should never destroy the body of an unborn human being without their consent. You see, that, that principle doesn't support the very position that people are trying to use it to support. And when you start unpacking these arguments, you realize, man, it's just people have never really stopped to think properly about what mm. the actual ethical logic is here and how it really doesn't actually hold water. Mm. Yeah, I feel like there is a big, there's a great chasm between the ethics and the emotions of it. Um, mm. Do you have any tips on how to bridge that gap? Well, I think, first of all, is you, we go back to, to love and charity. You, and sometimes I think you've also got to earn the right, if you like, to have conversations with people. Um, and it might be as simple as just your demeanor as a way of earning that right, if you like, to have a conversation. Uh, it might be that you have to first build a friendship before you get into the deep and meaningful issues of life. Uh, you might not have time for that. So as I said, it goes back to your demeanor. But I think this, the, the, the way you earn it, the currency, the, the credit, if you like, with which you earn the right to have hard conversations is charity. I really believe that. And if you don't have that, then forget about it. You just forget about it. And and look, I, I've, I've been, been sad in the last couple of days. There's a story that came in from overseas. Um, Argentina has just, in the past 12 months, uh, legalized abortion in their country. And one of the big frontline pro-abortion, who called herself radically pro-abortion campaigners, a 23-year-old young woman, she died about two weeks ago having an abortion, which she described as a something she was looking forward to as like a happy, momentous occasion, and it killed her and her unborn child. And for me, it was a great tragedy. I was seeing some pro-lifers who just online, their response was, well, she got what she deserved. And I was like, no, she was sold a lie. And that lie killed her unborn child and her. And that is a serious tragedy. It's a huge tragedy. It's a grave evil. She's a victim of the very culture the beast she actually fed has devoured her. And it's just horrific. Now, our response as pro-lifers should not be, ha-ha, she got what she deserved, or, you know, that cold, callous, oh, well, no. Our cause is a culture of love, as I said. And so I think you earn that right to have the hard conversation by actually and always remembering charity and engaging in charity. And I think also, here's another tip. I would say don't underestimate the power of a question. We often think we've got to sort of defend an argument. We go back to that point you made before, the truth is like a lion. Sometimes I think the best thing you can actually do, in fact, often is to actually just say, hey, what about that lion over there? <laughs> you know, and, and and not say, hey, look at that lion. Just what about that lion? And so it's, sometimes it's, it's simply a matter of saying, so someone says to you, uh, you know, well, I, I believe that I believe in bodily autonomy and so therefore abortion is okay. And you say, okay, but what about this scenario? 
Or what about the bodily autonomy of an unborn human being? Why about their body? It's a question that's very powerful and very loaded. But what it, a question does is two things. It's less confrontational and it's inviting people into a dialogue, not a, a screaming match about who's right and who's mm. wrong. Yeah, a friend of mine um, often says, like, approach him by saying, help me to understand I don't, mm. I don't, can you, can you, can you explain yeah. that one more thing to me? And then just like take it to its logical end, which yeah. end, ends yeah. the logic. That, that's a good point. I would say two other points that you've actually made me realize when you're saying that is one is that um, don't, don't be afraid to actually confirm for people what they really, what they really believe. So ask them, you know, can I just clarify what you're saying is you believe X, Y, Z, because often what we do is we, and these are these debates, they're very heated and emotive, and we think they mean one thing, they don't mean that at all. So, so ask that question and then respond to what they actually say, not what you think they said or what you would like them to say. You know, all pro-choice people believe X, Y, and Z. Well, they don't. Everyone's different on this. Um, so understand what they're actually saying before responding. Don't be too quick to respond. Understand first. Um, secondly, I think there's a really powerful question you can ask. And it has applications around outside of just pro-life issues, by the way, but a very powerful question to ask people is, have you ever had a moment where you have doubted your pro-choice convictions? Have you ever had a moment that's caused you to think, mm, maybe the pro-life is right? And I guarantee you will be absolutely surprised by the answers you get to that question from people who, who are being honest in their dialogue with you. And, and here's the thing. When having a conversation with someone like this, we often think that victory looks like this. It looks like a conversation with someone's pro-choice and then they say, oh, you're right. I'm wrong. I renounce my former ways. That is not how human intellectual conversion happens for most people. It takes time. We have human hubris and pride. It gets in the way and we, we mm. might quietly think, damn it, Dom is right, but I'm not going to tell him that. So most people don't. Mm. Here's, here's what a victory looks like. A victory is someone who says to you, oh, I'd never thought of that. Or, oh, you've made a good point. Or I, uh, I suppose you're right. I hadn't considered that aspect of it. Those are moments where someone is realizing that they're, and you can actually see it, they're truthfully telling you that they are realizing that their reasoning has some deficiencies and they're actually seeing them. Mm, mm. Yeah, I suppose it's even if, even if they don't say that out loud, it's not about getting them to say those things so then you mm. feel the retribution. <laughs> um, no. Yeah, so would I guess, you know, Evangelion's mission is evangelization. And I suppose one thing that I've realized, the more I've looked into various areas of Catholicism, like theology of the body, and now looking at pro-life, the, um, the same, like, kind of tools can be used. This isn't, this isn't okay, I'm going to go be pro-life now. I'm going to go and be, do theology of the body now. It's like, no, I'm just going to go and do be Catholic now. And part yeah. of that will be, I'll be, I, you know, asking the same questions, yeah. having the same demeanor, and so yeah. like just going forth in faith. Um, yeah, and look, and, and you know why that is? It's because, um, and people who come on and, and do our pro-life, activate pro-life training, they're, they're often really surprised when they realize, oh my gosh, this isn't just about the issues of abortion and euthanasia. There is a whole vision of reality that lies behind this, and that's what they get. And I've, I've had people who have come through our Activate Pro-Life training, had a, a couple of uh, evangelical pastors who have then gone back and encouraged other people in the church to come and do the training. And they've said to them, this training, you know, don't be fooled by the pro-life label. 
this training will transform the way you do Christian ministry full stop. Mm. And I'll tell you what it is. What is happening there, and you, you've alluded to it with your, what you've just said there, is that you are the, the Christian vision of reality is that we all flow out of the life of abundant, self-giving love. That is the Trinity. It's communal. It's self-giving. It's rational. It's free. We're made in the image and likeness of it. Uh, we're made, you made the image of it. We're called to live out the likeness of it. We often fail at that second bit. Um, but when you realize that, you realize whether it is accepting a difficult, challenging pregnancy, whether it is loving someone who is post-abortive and who is crying out in pain, whether it is engaging with an atheist, whether whether it is talking to someone who uh, who is like perhaps a hostile anti-Catholic Christian, it's all and should be flow out of and be a reflection of and lead back to that self-giving love of the Trinity, which is always communal, which is always self-giving. And I think that's the the essential underpinnings that that you know frame our very vision of reality. Mm. Yeah, yeah. So I guess the the first book to read on if you want to start living a pro-life life is the gospels. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Mm, exactly. Praise Jesus. Hallelujah. So I, mean, really uh, I, I feel like we could talk like this for hours. Um, but there's a, I believe there's a one week course people could be doing. Could you, people tell you, could you tell us those listening how they can get in touch with maybe you or the activate program and when it runs so they can get more information about it? Yeah, of course. Look, it's coming up in July 5th to the 9th of July in Auckland. It's from uh, Monday morning to Friday afternoon, just after lunchtime. Uh, it's a phenomenal week, as I said. It, it Look, it'll, it'll change your life. It really will. You won't come away from it disappointed that you attended. You won't come away from it transformed, changed, matured in some way. I guarantee you. It's, it's a, it, it is a phenomenal event. And, and for me, as the person who is tasked with um, overseeing this ministry and making sure it happens each year. I It's one of my most life-giving things that I do in my ministry. That's it, For me, it's just a beautiful, it's not a chore at all. It's quite a beautiful thing. So it's 5th and 9th of July. It's in Auckland. Uh, we are using um, a retreat center up there that we go to. It's a beautiful spot on the North Shore, right on the beach, literally right on the beach. So it's a beautiful view. There's, you can wander the beach in your free time. It's just, it's phenomenal. Great people from all around the country. Uh, whether you are someone who thinks you know everything about pro-life, who is not sure, who is maybe thinking, well, why does this matter to me? I'm not, you know, I'm, I'm doing youth leadership, but I'm not doing any pro-life stuff. Come along. Guarantee you, your youth ministry will be transformed by it. I, I, I guarantee that. So it, it's, it's for anyone who's over 18 years of age. You can find out more information at Activate NZ. So that's not the word activate. It's that tricky, clever youth ministry thing where we put numbers in places where there should be letters. So active, A-C-T-I-V-8, the, the numeral 8, NZ for New Zealand.org, ActivateNZ.org. Now, the details at the moment on the site are... Um, uh, from the last training event because we're just updating at the moment the promo material, but that's where all the promo material will be. Focus on the family. Also on their website, family.org.nz. Uh, we'll have details there. And if you want to find out more, then uh, look, I don't, I don't know. You must have a contact detail for your for Evangelion. If people want to get in touch with you, you can send them directly to my way via email. 
and and I will make sure that they know. Look, I, I do a lot of speaking work, and just last week I spoke at an event, and a young guy there who's actually an academic himself said, "Look, I want to come. Email me the details once they're, they're online and available." So we're always happy to do that as well. Yeah, yeah. So if anyone wants any details, you can come through Evangelion, or you can go to any of those websites that Brenda mentioned. Um, yeah, is is there any like anything? One last thing that you'd like to say to anyone about being pro life? Oh man, I just say have courage and do it. Like it's we often want to make this rocket science. It's not. You just and we just got to have the courage. I'd say to go and take the truth of of the culture of life, to take the truth of Christ into our culture. Because here's the thing: while we're sitting there afraid and worried and thinking, oh, but it won't be popular, and I think Jesus wants me to be popular, he doesn't. He went to the cross alone. And 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 it kind of sucks, but it's also kind of beautiful because it releases you in that moment. Yeah, let's just get in there and do it, you know? We're not looking for glory. We're not looking for reward. We're not looking for riches. Let's just do this thing. And I, and I tell you why it matters. Because people are literally dying. And it's not hyperbole. There are people who are literally losing their lives because of the culture of death that they are drowning in. And those of us who have been graced with this beautiful gift of the saving grace of Christ and all of the wondrous treasures that come along and have been given to us through the church, we have an obligation to take that into that culture and at least offer those people that life wrath that no one else and nothing else can give them. Beautiful, beautiful. Well, thank you very much, Brendan, for joining us and spending some time with us. I've definitely got a lot out of this and I'm looking forward to getting more involved and uh, looking into Activate Program. Um so thanks for joining us and everybody else thank you for joining us um, that conversation was great and thank you for tuning in to this episode of Curiously Catholic if you enjoy this episode you can find out way more information about us at evangelion.co.nz go on any podcasting app look up Curiously Catholic and we're going to be moving across to YouTube very shortly so look up our Evangelion Sharing the Truth and Love channel and you'll find us through there. Please do subscribe, rate us, leave a comment, because that does help us get things out there. So uh, pay attention, see you later, and stay curious and stay Catholic. Thank you very much. God bless.